when the Western and Southern Oakland was acquired by a billionaire businessman, it was always a possibility that he might move out of Cincinnati. We just didn't know that he was planning on building a new $400 million home for it out of state. Also, as a proud St. X grad, it heartens me to see that Xavier University is opening a first-in-the-nation Jesuit college on its campus. This is Above the Fold. Welcome to Above the Fold, a podcast by the Cincinnati Business Courier. I'm your host, Andy Brownfield, joined by Courier Editor Tom Dermaropoulos. Hey, Tom. Good morning, Andy. Notice how I switched between Courier and Courier there? Uh, I've been getting comments from other people on staff like, oh, hey, you're finally pronouncing it right. Not anymore, Courier. <laughs> it's more Corey than ever before. Yes. <laughs> Twice as Corey. We are coming at you pre-recorded from the studios of MSA Design, where the podcast Building Ideas is recorded. Host Bill Baker has conversations with designers about how design can change the world. It can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts. And it's the end of an era. When Bill found out that Above the Fold was temporarily homeless earlier this year, he graciously offered up his studio for us to record in. But this is the final time we'll be coming at you from MSA Design. I want to thank Bill and Mike and everyone at MSA for being such great hosts to us. So as I mentioned up top, the Western Southern Open's new owner has plans to build a $400 million home for the tennis tournament in Charlotte. When we talked last week, the Ohio House representatives had recently allocated $22.5 million in state funding to upgrade the tournament's current home at the Lindner Family Tennis Center in Mason. But BMOC Sports and Entertainment, the new owner of the Western and Southern Open, it's planning a tennis complex in Charlotte. So the tournament's been here forever, like since 1899. Yes, this is a longtime staple of Cincinnati and arguably one of the best sporting events that is hosted here in Cincinnati. And hosted pretty regularly. I mean, like I said, it's been over a century, and for the last 21 years of that, Western and Southern has been the main sponsor of it. And it's, I, you know, I don't sport, constant refrain I say, but I do know that this is a pretty big deal in the tennis world, the Western and Southern. Yeah, the thing about this tournament, Andy, is that it is... From, from all accounts, it's beloved by the fans. The fans, you know, love coming to this tournament. What's really interesting, what's really interesting is that the players all say how much they love coming here to play. This is kind of viewed as the tune-up tournament for the U.S. Open, and it's a great, relaxed environment for these players. They can come to you know Mason, Ohio, and they're not under the bright lights of New York. It, you know, they can come and visit you know, different attractions here in the Cincinnati market. Kings Island's right in their backyard. He can go ride some roller coasters. Uh, but they do. They all say how much they enjoy coming to Cincinnati for this tournament. So Charlotte, BMOC is asking the city of Charlotte and the state of North Carolina for $132 million to help them with this. And I think that's kind of going to be the linchpin of whether or not they build this new, this new tennis complex. If they do, it would have 40 courts on 53 acres and abutting a 1,400-acre residential and commercial development in the River District in Charlotte. So if Charlotte lands this tournament, it could move there as early as 2026. Now, they estimate that 350,000 people would be attracted to the tournament if it moved to Charlotte. It would be able to accommodate that many people, and it would bring in, 200, it would bring in $275 million in economic impact. That's kind of a little bit bigger than Cincinnati. It is, but so there's a caveat here, Andy, which is the fact that they're looking at making the U.S. Open men's tournament larger than it is currently. So today, I think there's 56 entry entrants, you know, players in the tournament, and they're looking to bump that up to 96 and increase the number of days. So the, the tournament is going to grow, whether it's here in Mason or if it goes to Charlotte. 
Um, so, you know, could Cincinnati reach that $350 million or 350,000 uh, people in attendance? I'm not sure, but it can definitely grow from the roughly 180, 190,000 that it's drawing currently. Yeah, and that's my next question to you is, is, is Charlotte just a, a city more known for tennis? Is it a bigger tennis city than Cincinnati? I, I don't think so. I think part of what's happening here is, you know, the new ownership is much closer to Charlotte than it is to greater Cincinnati. So that, that could be a factor here. And, and you know, I, I would I would like to see, and it's, it's the, the city of Mason and the state of Ohio are already taking steps to try to kind of match what would be built in Charlotte uh, before we knew that something was going to be, you know, that something is planned for Charlotte. So I, 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 I just don't see that Cincinnati couldn't be as good of a location for this tournament as Charlotte. Yeah, so our Steve Watkins, he, he got some comment from BMOC, and they said that they are working with Mason on alternatives and that they work with a lot of cities. So it doesn't sound like this Charlotte thing is a done deal, but they expect to make a decision late this summer after this year's edition of the Western Southern Open. I grew up with my family going to Bellarmine Chapel on the campus of Xavier University. I remember two things primarily from years ago in there. The student union had Mortal Kombat 2 in the basement, which is, uh, you know, probably not the best thing for young people at a church potluck. Uh, but then also the campus used to look entirely different. Tom, did you ever spend much time at Xavier's campus in the late 90s or early aughts? Uh, I, only in the early aughts when I was touring colleges to try to decide where I wanted to go. Xavier was on my list of potential colleges. I ended up not going there, but uh, loved the campus. So do you remember then that like the, the whole, much of the campus was taken up with a bunch of row houses, which I guess were used for student housing? Yeah. And all that was just kind of clear cut. And since then, Xavier has built up a, a true world-class college campus there. Buildings like the Smith Hall, which houses the College of Business, and the Hoff Dining Commons. And the campus is about to get another new major addition, with Xavier announcing last week that it's planning a new College of Osteopathic Medicine, the nation's first such Jesuit college. So I had a professor of English at OU. His name was Matthew Stollard. He called Jesuits the black ops of the Catholic Church. Why did he call them the black ops? I have no idea, but I'm going to have to look him up and ask him sometime. He was a great professor. He was known for jumping on his uh, desk and playing, I think it was the lute, medieval. He played medieval tunes. Anyway, <laughs> neither here nor there. So osteopathy is the holistic patient-centric approach to medicine that primarily centers on preventative health care. And the Xavier College of Osteopathic Medicine hopes to welcome its first class in 2027 and graduate them in 2031, the same year as Xavier's bicentennial. So for that inaugural class of 75, they're going to need somewhere to be. And they haven't disclosed yet where this college is going to be, but it's expected to generate $125 million in economic impact and support 740 jobs when it's being constructed. Yeah, Andy, this is a, a, a huge step for Xavier for a number of reasons. One, uh, I think what they're dealing with here is a critical shortage of physicians, uh, not just in Ohio, but nationally. So the fact that they're, they're bringing this school to their campus is going to help our region with our, it will help our region help solve that, so that problem of, of not having enough uh, physicians. Uh, but also it is, it's a huge investment. There's a lot of economic impact that comes from adding more students to the university. There's a lot of economic impact from the design and construction of the building itself. So this is a, this is a big move for uh, Xavier kind of acting boldly here. Yeah, same year they're talking about bringing back football. <laughs> football and doctors, new Xavier. So this next story tripped me up a bit when I first heard the headline. 
To pull back the curtain a little bit for our listeners, we start every morning with a meeting where every reporter talks about what stories they're working on that day. And when Chris Wetterick said he was working on a story about vertical industrial building in Camp Washington, my first thought was, aren't all buildings vertical? I mean, what's the opposite of vertical? Subterranean? <laughs> they have some verticality. So the, the Port of Greater Cincinnati Development Authority, they're doing something they've never done before, which is a speculative multi-story industrial building. And when I first heard that, the headline pitched was Port Plan Spec Vertical Industrial Building in Camp Washington. And as a layperson, that kind of made a nice whooshing sound as it went over my head. So can you translate that into Andy Brownfield for me? Sure. So, you know, being a longtime commercial real estate reporter, spec is short for speculative, and that's the term that's used for a building that will be built regardless of if they have a tenant or not. So a developer will will make the investment, make take the risk that someone will want to use this building, so we'll build it on spec. And then multi-story uh, for industrial is kind of unheard of here in Cincinnati in terms of recent development. I mean, industrial buildings of, you know, decades ago when people weren't thinking about big, wide footprint buildings, uh, they used to be built for manufacturers a lot of times with multi-story. But but true today's industrial, the only places you really see a lot of multi-story development are in landlocked area so mm. the port cities in california where there's just no room to build a, a building that has a million square foot you know footprint they'll go up uh, but they're doing it here in camp washington yeah camp washington historical manufacturing hub for the region and something interesting i saw in the story is that in the 40s and 50s the neighborhood and its companies generated a full 40 percent of cincinnati's earning tax revenue so camp washington's got a rich history of this now, what the port plans is to have storage, parking, offices, and manufacturing on all different levels of this building. And CEO Laura Brunner, she said that the, the best thing for us to do is a proof of concept and self-develop a building. So it sounds like they're kind of blazing ground with this. Yeah, definitely, Andy. This is the port kind of doing what only the port can do. This is, this is one of those projects that you know, the market, because there's not really a market there, no one in the past has done something similar. So they're going to kind of go into Camp Washington and prove that there is an opportunity here. So the idea being that once the port does it, you know, maybe some other developers will come in and follow suit. Yeah, so they're kind of proving proving it out to make it, to de-risk it for other developers. And speaking of developers, there's always kind of a push and pull between real estate developers and urban conservationists, isn't there? Remember the fight over the old Denison Hotel downtown? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah. So the Hoffman School... It's currently being used as the Christ Temple Full Gospel Baptist Church, and they want to sell it to a developer, Chindam Ndukwe, and his Kingsley and & Company. And Ndukwe, he's got plans to develop it to 250 housing units on the overall site. Now, that would require demolishing the old school and using the entire property, because uh, Chin, he says that rehabbing that school is cost prohibitive, and it would cost about $400 per square foot and only yield 22 units of housing. So the school was designed by the famed architecture firm Samuel Hannaford & Sons, though it was designed after the death of Samuel Hannaford himself. And it's a 101-year-old, I don't know if I can pronounce this correctly, Jacobethan? 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 Yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave this all. I'm not going to add this out. Revival-style school. <laughs> I don't know how it's pronounced. I don't either. Uh, but the the... Cincinnati's Historic Conservation Board voted unanimously, unanimously I, I, just, I can't pronounce things today, too much coffee, 
the Historic Conservation Board voted unanimously, unanimously on May 8th to designate it a historic building. Now, it's still got to go through City Council and Planning Commission before it's, it's a true designation that it's awarded. But three architectural surveys done in 1979, 1998, and 2019 have said that the school is eligible for listing on the National Register of Historic Places. Yes, Andy, so this is a, you know, this is a tough one, and this is something that Cincinnati in particular has to deal with on a regular basis because we have done such a good job of keeping many of our older buildings. But the, the question becomes, you know, do we keep every old building? Is every old building worth saving, or are there opportunities for redevelopment and new growth? And kind of the argument that I will go to sometimes is, for Crew Tower to be built, we had to knock down something that was older. So are we standing in the way of progress by maintaining everything, or is it good to maintain more things because they have historic value? Yeah, and I think there's some question as to the actual usability of that building. I mean, it was gifted to the church by Cincinnati Public Schools 11 years ago, but the church claims it can't use all the buildings because there's just so many problems and that it's, it's unsafe. And uh, Chinnity Mandukwe, he said that his development plan could help alleviate the city's housing crisis, but the deteriorating condition plus a new state law prevents developers from seeking both low-income housing credits and state historic tax credits would make any development cost prohibitive if he has to incorporate the school itself. Yeah, and the fact that you'd only be able to... What happens with these schools is sometimes they lay out really well and it's easy to get multiple units like per classroom because each classroom is probably going to be too big to be a single unit, so you'd want to split them in some way. And, and they just, they don't always chop up easily to become apartments. And then the other thing with schools is they have very wide hallways because it was built for lots of students to go back and forth in between classes. That's dead space for a developer. They, they can't take a hallway and turn it into something because it's where people will be walking in between their apartments. So while the square footage is 60,000 square feet, how much of that is, is space that really just can't be turned into leasable square footage? Yeah, it's a conundrum. You know, it's not a conundrum, though. Tacos. Love tacos. <laughs> Tom, who's got the best tacos in Cincinnati? Me? I make the best tacos in Cincinnati. No, what? I will claim. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I I love so many of our, our taco joints around town. I, I love Nada's tacos. I love Bakerfield, Bakersfield. Uh, Agave and Rye has the wild tacos that are oh, yeah. kangaroo tacos. Just just outlandish, but fantastic at the same time. And then there's Mizunte. Yeah, yeah. There's there's, you know, there's really no wrong answer to that question. I mean, there's there's a taco truck at, taco truck at Sunoco in Norwood near my house that has excellent tacos. And I'm I'm super excited for Pata Roja to open up on Court Street. But yeah, I think Mizunte is one of my go tos, especially since they're so close to me in Madisonville. And I'm I'm particularly fond of their Al Pastor tacos, which were at the Mizunte Central location downtown near our old office. So soon, our neighbors to the south are going to be able to experience Mizunte for themselves. The restaurant is opening its fourth location in Lexington this year. They're going into the upcoming 125-room Manchester Hotel in Lexington's Distillery District. And it's going to be kind of a two-pronged thing. And this is something Mizunte's never really done before. They're going to open up La Brasa, a 13,000-square-foot event center, which they're going to run, and Mazunte Bodega, which is described as a best of all three. So Mazunte in Cincinnati, they got the Taqueria in Madisonville. That's their first original location. 
They've got the Mazunte Mercado down the street, which is more of a wholesale kind of grocery-style store where you can buy a lot of the same ingredients, salsas and guacamole that they use themselves, and the Centro downtown. So this bodega, it's going to be, again, in a hotel, so it's going to serve as an amenity to guests. They can go down, grab a bottle of wine, maybe some prepared food, something to take back up to the hotel room. But it's also going to serve this event center that, that Mazunte is going to run. Yeah, and I think this goes to the the trend in the hospitality industry of each stay should be unique. And this is so unique for a hotel to have. This is just a very different offering than you would find in most most hotels. So what a great amenity to offer your guests for that person who's looking for something that's different, for something that's unique. This Mazunte Bodega and the events and the and the event space. Fantastic opportunities there. And it's just a new line of business for Mazunte themselves too, which if it proves to, to work well, could be something they could explore bring back to Cincinnati. And they had to really adjust their team to, to make this happen, right? Yeah. So I, I talked to Josh Wamsley, who's the founder of Mazunte. Super interesting guy. Used to be a journalist. So of course, you know, we connect. <laughs> but uh, he said that 2021 was the most profitable year in Mazunte's history. And this was coming out of the pandemic. But to make that happen, it was just, it was chaotic, right? You know, I don't, I don't want to say chaotic, but you know, Josh's leadership team had to like jump in and fill in and, and work shifts within the restaurant themselves. So he said that he really needed a chief operating officer in order to handle any kind of expansion and let his team free up to do their jobs. Only he had kind of very particular needs for this chief operating officer. He wanted somebody with a hospitality background preferably someone who worked in restaurants, and ideally someone who's bilingual since so much of the kitchen staff is from Mexico. I mean, they're making authentic Mexican food. So what Josh realized, though, is that he had the whole team in place already, and they could fill all those functions that he needed from a a chief operating officer. They just needed to kind of coalesce around this idea of expansion and freeing him up to work on developments. So we kind of really empowered these people to take on these roles and, and really have ownership of how the business was run, which freed him and his co-founder up to pursue this expansion down to Lexington. So La Brasa, the event center, is going to open this fall, and the bodega will come shortly after, late fall or early winter. This week on the podcast, we've got Chef David Falk, owner of Boca Restaurant Group, with its Boca, Soto, and Nada restaurants downtown. Falk was a protege of, and perhaps spiritual successor to, the late French master chef Jean Robert de Cavell. He worked for Jean Robert at the legendary Maisonette restaurant downtown, and not, now operates Boca in that same space. David talked with us about never feeling satisfied, the importance of building great teams, and how Domo, his prepare-at-home meal company, grew out of COVID-19. This is David Falk on a book. The other issue is I suck with technology, so Sound much better with sharp objects and fire. <laughs> hey, true. Test our levels. Testing, 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 testing. So, what you want to do is take the scallops, put it in the pan, butter and the oil, ketchup. or just butter. Ketchup. Uh, ketchup. ketchup. Yeah, we're going crazy these days. <laughs> All right. So, before we started, you were telling telling Bill about how the restaurant industry—it's like being bit by a vampire. You are, or you aren't. Mm-hmm. But then you've also got a one-year-old at home. So how do you how do you juggle the two? Well, I mean, I think the when we talk about it, it's you know that's actually a great question. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think to me, you know, one, I'm an old dad, 
you know, I'm 47 years old, got three kids, and I'm glad that I'm an old dad, right? Like, I cannot imagine being married with kids at the beginning of my career mm-hmm. or, like, the beginning of, of my company. And so, um, you know, and, and I think I'm at a phase now at 47 where <clears throat> I'm kind of in this transition where it's it's so weird. Like, my company's 22 years old, but I feel like I'm just now growing up. You know, like my wife would probably agree with that point, I, except maybe not so much growing up. Like she's, I'm, you're starting to think about growing up, but, but yeah, I think from a, from a company perspective and from a strategic perspective, you know, I'm just at a point now where I'm, I'm fixating on honestly, good to great, the book, good to great. Like that, I mean, I've been preaching good to great for, I think ever since it came out early two thousands, roughly, but I was also the type of guy that myself and, and a couple other guys in my organization, like Jono Freeze, who was my COO for a long time, started as a line cook back in Northside and grew up like, you know, but I could take the organization, kind of put it on my back and be like, we're going here. We're going to do this crazy Mexican restaurant downtown. We don't know anything about Mexican restaurants. So we're just going to do it. Right. <laughs> and then it's like, uh, we're going to take over the Mason out. We're just going to do it. Right. And, you know, you can, you can do that, but it's, you know, it's 24 seven. You're just all in. And now, and even rolling out, not, I mean, there was just this, put the organization on our back, let's go. And honestly, I, you know, we'll see, but I wouldn't be surprised to, to, you know, ask me in another 20 years, we'll come back and do this. And I wouldn't be surprised if I told you that the single greatest um, event that happened to, like, to making me the best possible business leader I could be is having kids. Hmm. Because it's like, as much as I love restaurants, and I love restaurants, I love food, I love food and wine. We were interviewing a sommelier last night from Italy, and uh, I just, you know, man, these meals, they, 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 you know, they mess my sleep up. I'm, I'm getting old. <laughs> but I love it, but I, but I don't love it more than my kids. And so, and I'm just committed. I'm not going to be a dad that didn't see his kids grow up, you know. And so, so it forces you, or at least me, it's forcing me to really look at good to great, right? Like we got to build a team and, and it, it's great because it's kind of forcing me to be really in a position that I probably should have been in 10 years ago, even, which is, you know, build the team and, and fixate on that, get alignment on vision. Um, and then, you know, I call it my four steps of, of leadership or yeah, pretty much four steps of leadership. And step one is good to great, get, you know, making sure you have the right people on the bus you know, uh, in the right seats. Step two is alignment on uh, structure and expectations. Step three is coaching them up and then releasing them. And then step four is celebrating them or holding them accountable. Super easy to say. Really, really difficult to do. Uh, I think that for me, the hardest part is step two, is the aligning on structure and expectations because that takes detail and time and to really map everything out and being organized. and, and, And I'm a... I'm all over the place. You know, I'm your typical creative all over the place. But as I get older, it's like, no, we have to do that. And we have to set very clear targets for people. And and I think Steve Jobs said something to the effect of, you know, any CEO or any leader's job is to make the vision very, very clear and very, very simple and get everybody marching towards it. Might have been somebody else, but I think it was Jobs. But anyway, so to me, and we found that if we just set a very clear, you know, vision and a goal and then we get now what I've done is I've brought people who are much better more detail oriented I'm very good at you know my team always laughs because I don't know why I always pick Chicago as the destination but I'm always good at being like we're going to Chicago 
we should go to Chicago. Here's why we should go to Chicago. It's like, great. Uh, that's it. That's that's where I bow out. Like, as far as, like, when are we leaving? What car? Who's filling up the gas? Who's driving? You know, where are we stopping? You know, uh, how many potty breaks do we need? See, I got to bring the kids into it. See, that's what you do, right? But, <clears throat> you know, there's other people who are better at that, and that's one of the things I'm kind of realizing. So, yeah, so it's having kids, to circle back, it's forcing me really to be more of a, um, you know, more of a leader and less of a crazy chef entrepreneur. Let's go, you know. Um, which I mean, it's it's feels great, honestly. That, that you having kids and getting old, <laughs> you know. Like I said, this meal last night. I'm like, man, I got up this morning. I was like, damn, ooh. you know. And I'm training for a half marathon. I'm like in ooh. great shape, but I was like, man, I you know, I just can't hang like I used to. So it all <laughs> kind of like. And you start to realize, you know, you do need, one, you need a team, and then you got to make sure you're building up the farm system underneath you because it is kind of a young man and woman's game, right? I mean, there's not, you know, it's, you know, Jono actually said it famously many years ago, show me an old, uh, successful, happy, healthy chef. There aren't many of them. Hmm. So does that involve giving up a little bit of control, and, and how does that feel? Yeah, for sure. Um, it actually feels, you know, the, my problem, and it's so stupid, like it's so pathetic, Right, like it, 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 it's really. I mean, and it's one of those things, right? It's the truism. Like it's, it, it's, 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 it's simple. It's not easy. And so, I am a little bit of a control freak. People would probably describe me as that, uh, for sure. And and again, I, I, I'm a control freak on things that I think are mission critical. Um, things that aren't mission critical, that's fine. I can delegate that all day long. It's just I think there's a lot of things. Well, not a lot of things, but important things. And the, the other issue too is like if. If, like, if I didn't care about greatness and, like, striving for greatness, my life would be so much easier. Honestly, like, there's a, there's a ton, like, millions of super financially successful restaurants that are average. There just are. I mean, like, it's a – I tell people all the time, it, it, this job would be so much easier if I didn't care, right? Like, I mean, you know, care enough. Like, we're going to, you know, I, we, somebody said this. They're like, you know – I, I will not name who this person was. It was hilarious at a bar, and and we were having drinks. And this is somebody's like, you know, I just kind of want to be good. We don't really need to be great. You you guys, Boca, you guys want to be great. Like we just need to be. We just want to kind of be good, maybe <laughs> average, right? You know, and like we use that through all the time. And and like for this particular person, the you know the concepts they had, I totally got it. Like they're not trying to, you know, they're not they're not trying to win stars and whatever else. But I just we use it all the time as like those words could never come out of my mouth. Like it's just not possible. And so yeah, so anyway, I think, you know, going back to your question, releasing control, I think step one is it it's good to create it's finding leaders that align philosophically with you. But we spent a lot of time last night talking to this guy and it was just like I have like I'll use, for example, sommelier. So we're interviewing sommeliers right now. <clears throat> and, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to get in their head to figure out, like, what's your point of view, right? And so you have a lot of psalms who come. <clears throat> they'll be like, oh, you know, it's, it's not about me. It's about the guests. And that shit sounds great. Can I cuss on this? Sorry. That, but this poop sounds yeah. great. <laughs> uh, you know, but it sounds great. But, but, like, no, because that's how you get – like, all my restaurants, I have a point of view. For example, at Soto, you know, which has, you know, certainly I think is our most popular brand right now. Like, we only have Italian wines on the on the list. 
Now, you could make a strong case for putting all kinds of different wines on the list, domestic and have California Chardonnay. I'm not doing it because I want, and I, and I told this guy last, he's Italian. And so I'm talking to him last night, and I speak just enough Italian. So a couple times it was kind of fun. I had to switch over to Italian because I wasn't quite sure I wanted the whole staff to hear what I was talking about. <laughs> uh, that was kind of fun. My, I actually heard my, my nonna, my grandmother, and my, and, her, and my great aunt used to do that when we were kids. So it was, that was kind of cool. I was like, yes. Anyway, um, but I was telling him, I'm like, I think that most people look at Soto on a scale of 1 to 10, and they would give it like a 9 on a scale of 1 to 10. And I see it at like a five and a half, six, right? And, and don't get me wrong, I think Soto's great. And we had a phenomenal meal actually last night, but I just see its potential. And, and, and because for me, I want and continue to want to fight for Soto to be the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest Italian trattoria in the country. Like, but like, you know, cento per cento Italiana. I mean, like just a hundred percent Italian, not, not Americans mess up Italian. They just screw up Italian. They can't help themselves. They need to add shit to it. It's like, no, it's the greatest cuisine in the world. Stop messing it up. Uh, anyway, so so for me, aligning with him on vision, on the wine program, the only, actually, the only wine, which may sound hypocritical, but I don't care because even Italians believe this too, the only non-Italian wine that I want, and I want it on the list because I love starting with it, is champagne. Because even Italians love starting with champagne, right? And they've got some great sparkling too. But but whatever. So so if you take that example, sorry, I could go on rants all day on this stuff. But but <clears throat> there it was critical to to like, do you agree? What's your point of view with wine? And then it gets into stylistically, right? Don't tell me like, well, it's not about me. It kind of is about you. Like you know, people are coming. That you know, I want you to have a vision. I want you have. I want you to have pet peeves. I want you to hate shit. That's one of the questions I like. What do you hate? Hmm. Right. And it kind of throws people off, and especially in the Psalm world, because they're so used to selling people. Right. And so the first thing I want to do is like, I don't, I don't care about selling. Like I care about us having a vision and driving after that vision. And that people then are like, wow, honestly, uh, Kevin Hart at Hart and crew does a phenomenal job of this. I mean, he could do a bunch of bullshit wine, but he doesn't, he's got an absolute world-class wine program that he does, uh, you know, and, and honestly, I'm proud. I mean, he came from our ranks. I mean, he was like my little brother. He was like 23. I fired him three weeks into the job and uh, told him he'd never make it in this industry. And uh, I like to jokingly say I was kind of right because he doesn't really have a restaurant. But no, he's he's amazing. But he has a point of view. Our mentor, Gordy Hugh, he has a, I mean, he has a point of view. And so, and you obviously got to wrap that up in a business sense too. You know, you can't just do super esoteric shit that nobody's going to, you know, buy, but at the same time, you want to strive to push things and push people. I want to make you a little bit uncomfortable, but then you have the experience. You're like, well, I always say it's like, why are roller coasters exciting? Right. Cause you have these, like the thrill of going up the hill and then, the, you know, and then you come down and it's like the relief and you're up and you know, when you go to Applebee's, you're not on, you know, you're not on any roller coaster, right? You just not. And you're like, eating, right. You know, it's just not, it's not, you know, so anyway, I don't know that it answered your question, but but I think to me, I spent a lot of time. Do these leaders get it? Do they get what I'm about? But yes, I am definitely. And, and again, I haven't not delegated, right? Like I'm not in the restaurants every night. I say this all the time, right? Like Soto's one of our probably, you know, maybe people would consider one of, if not our greatest success, and my greatest success as a as a restaurateur. And I'm not, you know, I took Danny Combs, the original chef, took him to Italy. I trained him up, you know, 
brought him down there. And then, you know, and then we just aligned on the vision. And then, you know, and there were times I'd come down there and I'm like, you know, that's, I, yeah, I'm not a fan of that, you know. And it would generally be, it was actually always when they were trying to do things that weren't Italian. Hmm. Like they do a pasta in the summer with chanterelle mushrooms and corn. And like, you're just not going to see that in Italy. And I'm just like, no, please don't do that. But, you know, there's few and far between. And so when you have those, but it's tough. I mean, the, the hard part for me is, this is actually interesting. I, I This answers your question maybe more directly. I want to, I've jokingly said, I don't know if it's even a joke anymore. Uh, I want to write a book mm. called The Myth of Delegation. Okay? You ready for this? All these business people are like, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> And it's not so, it's just the myth of delegation. And and I guess by design, it's supposed to sound a little bit provocative. But the reality is everybody talks about delegating. Oh, delegate. Oh, you just got to delegate. And it's such horseshit if you don't do the first part. So the name of the book was going to be, you know, first, you have to good to great before you delegate. See, it even rhymes. You know, you got to good to great before you delegate. And it's like, you have to have the right people in the right seats before you delegate. Because if you del, I, I mean, nobody loves delegating crap more, more than I do. You know, love it. But if I don't have somebody who gets it, then all I have to, you know, and, and I got to go around and clean up the mess, right? And so, and the challenge for me is we're not in San Francisco. We're not in New York. We're not, you know, we're not in Paris. We, we don't, you know, it's, it's hard to go out and just find somebody off the street in Cincinnati who understands what being world-class is. And I will tell you right now, this is the greatest time in the history of the universe to start poaching talent from California. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, every human being we talk to, they're like, get me out of the state. Like, literally, this guy's in San Francisco. I got one. I got a guy coming in this week from uh, Santa Barbara. I mean, they are just like. So now it's funny. Cincinnati is like, it's so attractive. It's so funny to me. It is so attractive. It is like, we are like, we're now Ryan Gosling. Okay, we were Danny DeVito. We're like Ryan Gosling right now. I'm serious. Like, it's unbelievable. Because they're like, quality of life, I, you know, the biggest thing is money, and then crime and everything else. And then they come to Cincinnati, and they're just like, this is amazing. And, and most importantly, though, they come and they eat at Boca and Soto, and they see like, oh, because my whole thing, I've said this, is that my vision for the company is to be world-class and family-centric. Like, to your, going back to the kids, you know, I, I don't, there aren't examples that I've seen. There's a lot of examples of people doing things that are world-class. There's lots of examples of organizations where, you know, you can have a life, okay? But typically what happens is if you're a chef and you get to that point, you're like, okay, I'm going to go be a food sales rep, mm-hmm. right? I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm kind of getting out of the business, but not getting out of the business. I'm still going to have my foot into it. You know, I'm going to leverage the relationships, but I'm not, but I'm really not in. And it's like, great. You know, now I can be home on the weekends with my kids, but, you know, but you're not being world-class. Then you say, I'm going to be world-class, and you go do that, but you don't see your kids. And so to me, and that's been a major selling point for us as we look for talent outside of the city is, and then they meet me and they realize, like, I mean it. You know, like, we threw it down last night. And the guy's like, dude, you're not kidding. I'm like, oh, yeah, I ain't kidding. And, and so to me, getting, getting that talent in, buying it on the vision, and again, I, I literally was just talking to my assistant on the drive down here, and I was like, I don't think I really realized how this is the greatest time ever to be building a team from outside Cincinnati. How much do you have to sell Cincinnati? It's interesting. So far, a little bit, but what's selling Cincinnati more than anything else is the cost of living. You know, I mean, it's just, I mean, I just saw some report somewhere that said, like, what, you know, what's the take-home pay 
adjusted for, you know, cost of living and everything else for somebody making hundred thousand dollars. And the worst offenders were like DC, basically every major city in California. It was DC, California, New York city. And, and so for me, that's, there's a lot of talent in those cities. And so like, and, and so my, my CFO Ben always asks this question. He's got like this, you know, inferior to complex, understandably so, but he's still kind of living like in Cincinnati in 2000, you know, where he's just like, he still thinks we're Danny DeVito, you know, not quite ready to, you know, you know, except that maybe we might, I don't know, Ryan Gosling, I'm going with Ryan Gosling, but whatever. <laughs> and he asks us every time when we're interviewing these folks from, you know, from, you know, one person's from Boulder, one person's from San Francisco, LA, New York. And he's just like, why, like, why do you want to move to Cincinnati? Like, I mean, he just every, and I'm like, and sometimes I'll just ask it for him. I'm like, I know Ben wants to ask this question. He wants to know why you, and, and this guy Mauro yesterday, he's like, I'll be honest with you guys. He's like, I did a lot of research on Cincinnati and the quality of life and, and, um, you know, uh, you know, where, where the, the, uh, you know, how far your money goes here is just, it's, it's. It can't be beat, and the fact that the economy seems to be doing well here, you're not, you know, it's just, it's, so it's really, it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's actually interesting. That wasn't, you know, I didn't sit there and say, oh, now was a great time. We were doing this anyway, coming out of COVID. It was like, all right, man, I want to run. And and the big things I did through COVID were, you know, I just any time we saw talent, just hire people. I was like, whoever comes out of COVID with people is going to win. And um, and now we're coming out and saying like, okay, now it's kind of, you know the next kind of chapter. It's almost like half the book is over. Now we're opening up the second half of the book and that's where, yes, I'm stepping into more of a kind of, you know, chef CEO role, I guess. And then bringing some badasses on and, and just aligning with them and then saying, let's grow. And the other thing I look at is like a farm team, you know, look at major league baseball all the time as an example, like how are we looking at a line cook in North Bethesda and seeing the potential that she or he has you know, and starting to map out a potential plan, you know, for, for, for that person. And so that's, and that's exciting. I love that. It's just, again, you got to have the people. That is the longest answer ever to a question. (laughs) Well, speaking of stuff that came out of COVID, it seems like Domo, when we first talked about that, you said it had the potential to be the equivalent of an entire restaurant in and of itself. Has it reached that potential? Does it have further to go? It is. It definitely, it's definitely at a singular restaurant level. And it's got way more legs. I mean, I, I think of, and again, who knows? But if you said, <clears throat> you know, of all the brands that, that you know, I've created or that we have, you know, wh- which one could be a billion-dollar business, right? It'd be Domo, no hmm. question about it. Now, I'm, let me be clear. I'm not saying, but when you look at it from a, from a, you know, from a marketing perspective, and one of my best friends is like the greatest, one of the greatest marketing minds, P&G or, you know, uh, you know, you know, just took, you know, some difficult brands at P&G and blew them up. And I got kind of ringside seats to watch it. So he's always, and he early on told me, he said, look, with Domo, you have virtually unlimited sales. However, it's not going to be easy, right? So you're going to try something, you're, you know, and so to me, and I, it's an epic battle constantly. Oh, this will be fun. I'm going to use you as a test market. I bet you already know the answer. But anyway, would you consider yourselves planners or procrastinators? Both. 
Okay, but what would you, in your natural state... In my natural state, I'm a procrastinator, but if I don't plan, I can't function. Yeah, okay, So, you, but you're a procrastinator. Oh, yeah. So that makes you a procrastinator. Oh, this is awesome. Three procrastinators. Yeah. <laughs> so this is great. This is fantastic. <laughs> I argue with my team all the time because I have a bunch of planners on my team. They're all planners. Mm. So Domo currently is totally set up for planners, right? You got to order on, you know, Monday, Sunday, for the, and that's fine. My wife's a planner. But here's the thing, and I bet you get, tell me if you agree with me on this. This is fun. I can't believe this is making it. Hopefully this makes it the podcast. My team's going to be like, of course you went there. <clears throat> planners look at us as not even second class, but like third class citizens. <laughs> they do, I mean, they just, my, my, you know, my marketing lady, Katie Papa, she's a planner. And she just, I left for a trip to Paris and I didn't have my hotel book before I got there or like a couple days before. Because I went online, there's like a million options. I'm like, I don't know. I'm trying to still figure out where I want to go and I'm, what's my running map. And she literally, I thought she was going to break out in hives. She was so nervous. Like they just cannot. And they, so it's not only that they can't wrap their minds around us, they can't, they literally think less than us. They're like, I just, well, I don't know why we would do something for procrastinators because if they just planned, they would be able to get the food. I'm like, you don't understand. So I'm sitting here like, look. My big push right now is to have Domo not only for the planners. Hey, if you're listening out there, we want to take care of you. We love our planners. Thank you. And that's really been about 99% of our market. But I have this woman, Chrissy, who lives right next door to me, five girls under the age of like 14 or 15 in her house, you know, uh, loves food, petrified of cooking. Like she's our market. But, and I asked her, she loves Domo. She's like, I just don't use that much because I'm a procrastinator. And so, anyway, whatever, I could go on and on. But, like, Domo's a lot of fun as we kind of think through how do we how do we expand it. And, really, it's it's always been the focus is, like, continue to expand it in Cincinnati uh, and just get better at the thing we do. The, the biggest impediment to Domo's growth has been me because it's all technologically based. As I told you when we started this podcast, like, I could never – like, I'm good with sharp objects and fire. I suck with technology. So my team's had to kind of bring me along and, you know – but we're in a, you know, we're in a pretty fascinating spot and going hard at at what does the future look like? We're going, you know, for Domo, we're now doing seven days a week or we're moving to seven days a week. And the goal is to have it to where you can order same day at one o'clock. And mm. basically just saying like Domo's a restaurant that just happens to deliver to your home. That's really what it is, you know. Yeah. I mean for for listeners who may not be familiar, it is you order ahead and they, they finish the food at home, but you guys do the legwork. Yeah, we kind of call it take and bake, right? Like, yeah. we actually kind of take it to you. But, yeah, it's – and what we found that's – you know, because when we originally looked at it, it was like I was convinced that we had to deliver hot food. Mm. And, and again, anytime I feel like you build a brand, you, there's always surprising insights that you weren't expecting, right? And so one of the surprising insights was – that people actually preferred the food to be cold and that they could put it in their fridge be, for a couple of reasons, two main reasons. One was that they had complete control over when they were going to have dinner, right? And number two is because everybody, you know, especially everybody with little kids uses DoorDash or Reads, whatever. They all use it and they hate it. They hate it because the food's like lukewarm, the order's wrong, you know. Uh, or it gets there after 75 minutes and you're hangry because you ordered it an hour hour and 15 minutes ago yeah you, you thought it was gonna get there in 45 minutes right exactly and so it's it's and so to me the and we actually i literally just had this conversation chrissy who lives next to me is like my perfect test marketer because i'm just like you are my market 
And and she's like, yeah, if I can order it at one, like between one and three, and it shows up at my house. So we're going to be, so if you're listening, we're going to try that. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if it's going to work or not, but I'm so adamant about their, well, okay, so here's the other thing about procrastinators and planners. And you planners who are listening, you know, maybe somebody's driving, like nodding their head when I say this. So we did some test marketing on this, and it was, it, I love it. It's so fascinating to see how people operate. You have your hardcore planners, right? They just, they got a plan, right? But then you have these planners who are planners, but, you know, as I always say, procrastinators, like true procrastinators, are never going to plan. Like, I will never order something on Sunday to eat on Thursday. Mm. I'm just not going to do it. Like, I'm going to get a reservation at a restaurant, but, but like, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm just not doing it. And when we talked to them, they're like, no, I would never do that. What's interesting is, so effectively, procrastinators will never act like planners, like ever, okay? However... Planners will act like procrastinators because even planners have their day blow up. Hmm. Kid gets sick, something happens, car breaks down, whatever. And I love what Chrissy said. She's like, I order Domo when I need a win. When I when that day I need a win. Maybe my week's crap or my day's crap, but like I just need a win that day. So I like, boom, get the not enchiladas, which is like the greatest. It's like the big, like, even it's funny. And I'm not saying this to like plug my own crap, but like it's just funny. Because, like, my wife is probably one of the biggest users of Domo, which still, I don't know why I think that's funny. Like, I'll come in and open the fridge. I'm like, what the hell is this? I'm like, oh, it's Domo. And the enchiladas. Like, every time we have the enchiladas, I'm like, this is so money. Like, it's so good and so easy. You know, it's just like a, I don't know, you guys, I don't know, you guys are probably too young to remember the commercials in the 80s, Hair Club for Men. The guy was like, I'm not only the president, I'm also a member, you know? It's like, that's kind of how I feel about Domo. Like, I I genuinely love Domo. Because I'm, and people ask this question all the time, they're like, they ask my wife. They don't actually ask me. So, like, what does David cook at home? I don't cook shit, man. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm tapped out. You know, like, I my my daughter Frankie loves steak, so we have like a standard steak meal that I'll do. But like, when especially the holidays, like, we are literally no different than our you know than our guests. Like, I get Thanksgiving from Domo every year. I get you know whatever the event is, I get it, and I and I am truly like blown away. You know, by putting together a whole Thanksgiving meal in an hour and 20 minutes, I think it was like an hour and 20 minutes, and we had my wife's family come over because we do a big one with my family, and we had my wife's family come over, and I'm like, I had this whole spread laid out of Thanksgiving, and it took an hour and 20 minutes, and I started thinking, like, as a chef, like, I'm a little more, you know, trained than your average cook, right? Like, if I had to recreate this meal, it'd be like three days. Like, Hmm. it's insane. Anyway, sorry. I just, I, I think it's, yeah, and it, it is weird. It's, it's like fun to be, have like, figure out how Boca, for me, I want to take it to the next level by really going after food wine pairings and just like, just getting after it. But it's a, in, and if you know me, I'm not happy unless I, I have, I have to have my hands in lots of different, totally random things. So I can jump from Domo to the new fajitas that we're doing at Nada, which are dope. And all the way up to pairing, you know, Egliore Champagne VP with poached oysters, sauce vanjana, and caviar, which I might be having tonight. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, I can't, I, as a procrastinator, I can't wait for that because I, I can, my wife and I try to go out every Friday for dinner and we can never get anywhere because it's always, what do we feel like having right now? And no one's ever got any reservations. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is like when you start realizing like, hey, that's, that's, you know, we can, and that's the thing I'm shocked about with Domo you know, just, you know, is the fact that I genuinely love it. And mainly because I just, I am the consumer and I see the consumer, right? And they're stressed out. You know, these, we get these replies back and it's just, there's this awesome video my my wife found on TikTok or some, I don't know what it was, but it was this woman who's like, can I just talk? 
I hate dinner time with the burning passion of a thousand suns. I mean, like, it was just hilarious. She's like, I just hate it. And I use that video to show my team. I'm like, that's who we need. Like, it's that person. We can help that person, right? And we can do it in a way. Oh, the other surprising thing about Dome, I forgot to mention. One was that <clears throat> people liked it cold. And the reason they liked it, 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 it they got to decide when they were going to order, or eat it, rather. So if it came at 4 o'clock, they could, we're going to eat at 7. We're going to put the kids down and eat. Or we're going to eat as a family. Like, they have total control. The other one, though, that's the big shocker, which is awesome, is that when you pull it out of the oven, your house smells like you've been cooking all day. Hmm. You know, like, carryout doesn't do that, right? You know what I mean? And, and it's just, and there is just something emotional, I think, at least for me, where you're pulling something out of the oven. It at least gives you the illusion I've been cooking all day. And I'm, you know, I'm not, like, I always say, like, Skyline and DoorDash and, and in Netflix, they're all the same, right? You, you know, they work, but you never feel good about it, right? <laughs> like, if we get, if we got a standard Skyline order for my family, and I love Skyline, but like, I, you know, I got a standard order. When I feed that to my kids, I'm not like, great job, dad, you know, or my kids are all, you know, running around like crazy, like, put on, okay, put on a cartoon. It works, but I'm never like, great job, great parenting, you know? So I think that's the nice thing about Domo is it, it does, it gives you that feeling of like, oh, this is like legit food. It's actually prepared. It's not mass produced. It was literally cooked that day at one of the top kitchens in the city. And yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Awesome. David, thanks for being with us. Yeah. Of the Fold is a podcast by the Cincinnati Business Courier, hosted by me, Andy Brownfield, and Tom Demeropoulos. Of the Fold is recorded in the studio of MSH Sign. The podcast is produced by me, and our theme music was written by Dylan McCartney. Come back next week for another edition of Above the Fold. Mm-hmm.